Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hello, welcome everyone. This is Mike Lewis with the Fanalytics Podcast. So, what I want to talk about today is really part three in a uh, well, a couple of conversations we've had earlier in the fall really focused on college football with uh, the topic, uh, our motivation for looking at the topic. I say we because Tom Smith uh, and I have had these earlier discussions. We were motivated by the legislation that came out of California related to allowing players to essentially profit from their images and and likenesses and, and names. And so you know, the, the California legislation was really set up to allow some form of marketing into college football. Uh, well, not really college football, but really college athletics. And so the idea is that like any other student, college uh, athletes would be able to monetize their images and their likenesses, and their names, do endorsements, run Instagram channels, these kind of things. So that, uh, part one, we, we had a, a discussion about the about the legislation and what it means and how, you know, what may follow based on the way things were laid out. You know, some of the key points of that, in addition to being able to profit from their likenesses, athletes would be able to do things like sign agents. Um, so it was really kind of opening the door to changing the fundamentals of college football. In part two, we took a little bit of a deeper dive into this fundamental controversy. And this idea of paying the players has been something that's been discussed and argued about for literally, literally decades. I can think of this being a controversial topic, uh, even as I'm growing up in the 1970s. And one of the things that's interesting about it is the, the tone of the conversation has changed a great deal over time, where this used to be a really strong contingent saying, well, their compensation is the scholarship, uh, the educational opportunities. I, I think the culture has largely shifted, and it's hard to find folks making the argument that some form of compensation is not, uh, is not appropriate for the players. Uh, so today, what I want to do is finish, I want to finish the, the sequence by talking a little bit about, it's, it's actually kind of a frequent topic for me uh, on the podcast, competitive balance. And so what does this all have to do with the idea of competitive balance in college football? So the way I want to do, uh, what I want to do to the conversation today is to build it around a, a series of questions. 
Um, the questions are going to be, what is competitive balance? Question two, why does competitive balance matter for the college football system? Question three, what do we think is going to happen to competitive balance given the current college football landscape? Question four, and this moves towards solutions, what is a, what is a collective bargaining agreement? Um, and in terms of that, I'm talking about sort of the collective bargaining agreements that exist in the professional American sports leagues. And then I want to end the podcast with uh, essentially a proposal. So, you know, given current circumstances, what's a, what's a potential recommendation for moving forward? Okay, so question one, what is competitive balance? Sports is a unique industry in a couple of different ways. One of the one of the things that makes sports different is an issue that I'll call co-production. Uh, you know, unlike just about every other industry you think about, organizations that are dominant, so organizations that are very good at what they do in sports, need to keep their let's say lesser competitors around. When the Yankees are playing a baseball game, they need an opponent. When the Harlem Globetrotters are playing an exhibition basketball game, they need an opponent. So this issue of competitive or this issue of co-production means that there's got to be some form of equality across a sports league. Uh, this is based on, I mean, and, and this goes way back. This is like an, I think this was in an, econ, an economics paper from the, maybe the 1950s or the 1960s. And that is, was stated as the uncertainty of outcome hypothesis. So the idea that sporting events, something that is co-produced by a couple of organizations is going to be better. It's going to be more enjoyable if there's some uncertainty. Okay. And so it's, it's like the idea of the thrill of competition. Uh, sports may not work if we always know who's going to win, right? I mean, there there's, needs to be this level of uncertainty. Now, I think it's an open question as to how much uncertainty there needs to be, how much parity there needs to be, how, how, much, how much dominance can you have while a league is still exciting to, to fans. Okay? Now, there are different definitions of competitive balance uh, in the academic literature. People may use things like the standard deviation of winning percentage across the league. And so what that means is how much variability is there in team success. So that measure would be minimized. So there would be complete balance if everyone was 500, right? So if, if every team in college football played 10 games and everyone finished five and five, then you have complete parity, you have complete competitive balance. Now, at the other extreme, if you have a bunch of teams that go 10 and 0 or 9 and 1, 8 and 8 and 2, and a bunch of other teams that go 0 and 10, 1 and 9, 2 and 8, that that's where you're going to have a, a higher measure in terms of the the competitive balance. So, greater variation in winning percentage. That's I I think the classic uh the classic measure of competitive balance. Now, where the literature kind of goes in different directions, and this is important when we think about uh, when we think about the nature of sports fandom. The one problem of using just the standard deviation of winning rates or the variation of winning rates is it sort of misses, uh, let's say, the long-term nature of fan relationships, fan relationships with their teams. So uh, other ways to look at competitive balance might worry about things like the concentration of championships or of making the playoffs.
So, you know, the, the danger is if, you know, the same teams always win or the same teams on the flip side of it or the same teams are never competitive, never making the playoffs, that's a different kind of, that's a different kind of issue. I love the topic of competitive balance because I think it's really a great, it's a great fan issue. Because if you think about the nature of fandom, and, and this is kind of a fundamental way of looking at fandom, it's like what, what is really necessary for fan passion to be created? I, I would argue that part of it is having, I mean, for the, for the sort of the truly iconic teams, there probably is a need for there to be a great deal of winning. You know, if we're talking about, let's say, clubs like the Yankees or the Lakers. These are teams with, you know, broad histories of championships. But for other fans, you know, as someone that grew up in Chicago and went to the University of Illinois, the question becomes, well, just how much is, how much is even necessary? You know, and I'll talk about this a little bit later on. You know, my college football team, the Fighting Illini I, I, has only made it to really just a few bowls in the last 20 years. And so is that enough to keep there, to keep there being any interest? Right. Now, the, um, the, I think the classic example of competitive balance, and this is where competitive balance really met the, the mainstream, was actually about 20 years ago when there was a lot of fear in Major League Baseball that the Yankees were going to end up being perennial champions. And so this is this is the era where the Yankees were had a payroll that at times was double some of their rivals and if you're looking at some of the weaker teams in the league, the Yankees may have had a payroll that was five or six or seven times greater than the than the clubs at the bottom of the uh, at the bottom of MLB. And so competitive balance became a a hot topic. Uh, there was even something called the Blue Ribbon Report where they brought in some folks from um, from politics, from academia, and a couple other places and really sat down and said, well, is this, you know, is competitive balance a problem? And if so, what can be done about it? What came out of the MLB Blue Ribbon Report was recommendations related to to revenue sharing, in fact. And, and again, we'll we'll come back to that a little bit later in the podcast. Okay. So competitive balance is... A starting point, and it's actually something that is not talked a lot about in the realm of college football. And I don't know that I've really heard anyone else talking about uh, the importance of competitive balance related to this topic of paying the players or allowing the players to profit from their from their images. So that brings us to question number two: Why does competitive balance matter for the college football system? Okay, how is this related to the the question of paying players? Okay, well, as of today's taping, which is uh, December 14th, we are in a position where the, the bowl games are about to start in a, in a few days, maybe about a week or so, and the college football playoff system has been, or the college football playoff has been set for the 2019-2020 uh, version. The college football playoff system is a good place to start because you know, when this system started in 2014, 2015, uh, the teams that played were Alabama, Oregon, Florida State, Florida State, and Ohio State. If you look at the 2019 system, we have um, Alabama. Sorry, actually, you know, and that that's sort of a funny little uh, 
verbal slip. We actually don't have Alabama for a change. What we have is LSU, Oklahoma, Clemson, and Ohio State. Now, Ohio State is sort of the overlap across these these two years. Uh, but over time, there's been a lot of overlap. Okay, since the college football playoff system has begun, Alabama has participated in five of the six playoffs. Clemson has participated in five of the six. Oklahoma four times. And uh, the Ohio State University have participated in three times. This seems, I think, intuitively very concentrated. You know, in, in particular with Alabama and Clemson, it almost seems like, well, this is just how their seasons tend to end unless something goes wrong. Okay, and so we we quickly get to a question of, is this a healthy situation for college football? When you've got a group of teams, um, and maybe this core group of teams is Alabama from the SEC, Clemson from the ACC, Oklahoma from uh, the Big 12, and Ohio State from the Big 10 are kind of your core teams, and then a few other folks tend to rotate in and out in, in, any, given, in any given year. In contrast, and I mentioned, I mentioned you know, my background, University of Illinois, Illinois' bowl participation since the year 2000, so going back to about 20 years now, is a 2002 Sugar Bowl, a 2008 Rose Bowl, a 2010 Texas Bowl, a 2011 Craft Fight Hunger Bowl, a 2014 Heart of Dallas Bowl, and this upcoming year, the 2019 Red Box Bowl. Quite a difference, right? So Ohio State's and the Alabamas are playing on a big stage, big time college football for championships, while you know other folks like, let's say, the Illini, get to a bowl game every once in a while. And, and very often they're not particularly glamorous bowl games. And so starting point, you know, we worry about competitive balance in college football is this kind of fundamental question. Is this a healthy situation? Uh, it's great if you're an Ohio State fan, I mean, maybe or an Alabama fan. If anything, maybe there's an issue of you get bored. Uh, maybe the stadium actually doesn't fill up because people are essentially... The status quo is, well, I'll start to attend when we get to the playoffs when things get serious. Um, so you got boredom on one end of the spectrum. And on the other end, you know, if you are in a program that doesn't get to play on the big stage and doesn't get to play in the prestigious playoff system or bowl games, how do you maintain interest? Okay. If you go back before the playoff, System and I think this is this is going to be a little bit arbitrary. So what I did was I just went back to 1990 um, before we started with this was I think of this as the era of more the the historical bowl system where a lot of bowl game matchups were dictated by conference agreements and you know, so the Big Ten champion would play the Pac-10 champion in the Rose Bowl. The SEC champion would play in the Sugar Bowl in Louisiana. The ACC champion would play in the in the in the Orange Bowl, and the Big Twelve champion would play in the um, in the, in the in the Cotton Bowl. And so, if you go back to 1990, in 1990 we had a split national championship. We had Colorado and Georgia Tech splitting the splitting the two major uh, polls. In 1991, Miami, Florida, and Washington. 
So we had Colorado, which I think at that point was in the Big 12. We have Georgia Tech out of the ACC. The following year, an ACC team, Miami of Florida. Um, though actually, I, I don't totally recall if Miami was in the ACC at that point. Uh, we have Washington from the Pacific 8, 10, or 12 conference. Uh, in 92, Alabama was the national championship out of the SEC. In 93, Florida State. In 94, Nebraska, a Big 12. I, I think they were still in the Big 12 at that point prior to moving to the um, the Big 10. Now in 94, Penn State, Nebraska was 13-0. and Penn State was 12-0. and So you have, a, if nothing else, a lively debate as to who was the, the, the true national championship. Nebraska again in 95 and Florida in 1996. You know, just reading through that, that's, that's quite a bit of, that's quite a bit of variety in terms of college football champions or debated college football champions. So since the college football playoff system has started, uh, we, we've seen far less variety. Um, you know, we've, we've seen Alabama with multiple championships and Clemson with multiple championships. And so, you know, what I'm talking about is truly, I mean, it, it's, it's anecdotal, but it's, it's suggestive. Um, so if we go back before a formal playoff system is in place, we've got a lot of variety. We've got a lot of people sort of popping up and at least having partial, chains, uh, partial claims to championships. Georgia Tech and Colorado, for example, after the playoff system started, and, and we, again, we've had a couple of variations in the playoff system over time, the BCS system, now the college football playoff I haven't ran the numbers, and it's difficult to run the numbers because we really have to agree on some metrics. Much more concentration, much more of Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State. And I, and I think it's, it's actually a logical consequence. And so when I think about college football and I think about, and, and this goes back to this issue of allowing the players to profit from their likenesses, I think the right way to look at this in terms of predicting what's going to happen is to just look at the incentives and the opportunities that are, are created by any regulation. And a playoff system is just a regulation. And then think through how that's going to have you know, sort of later ramifications. And so if we go back to the pre-19, you know, the pre-BCS system, the old system actually limited competition, if you think about it. Because, you know, and if you go back to way the, the way these arguments were structured, the frustration was always that, let's say there was an undefeated USC team and an undefeated SEC team. So let's say USC was undefeated out of the Pac-10 conference and Alabama or Florida was undefeated out of the SEC. Those teams did not get to meet. Okay. This meant that both of those teams had maybe a claim to the national championship. Uh, this system frustrated fans, of course, was sort of gold for talk radio, um, but, uh, you know, created all sorts of opportunities for columnists to write, uh, to write features, created all sorts of points of discussion, all leading to the point of how ridiculous it was that there was no sort of eventual championship. Even if you think about like the distribution of these ball games, you know, one's on the West Coast, one's in Florida, one's in uh, New Orleans. It was a system that was in place, you know, based on historical agreements and negotiations that fundamentally 
limited the common the the level of competition in college football right essentially you might be the best you were going to do is come up with a champion across let's say the pac 10 and in the big 10 it was almost something and not intentional but in a way it was something that was designed to limit the cutthroat competition and to sort of preserve, let's say, the market position of all sorts of folks. Because if the pack, you know, if the Big 12 champion never plays the Big 10 champion, then it's hard to really make an argument that one of those leagues is better than the other. If the SC champion doesn't get to play against the Pac-10, again, it's hard to make that real solid determination that one or the other is better. Okay, and so this is clearly something that frustrated fans, but it might have been an important constraint on the system moving to, let's say, perhaps really problematic or really challenging competitive balances. Now, given the way college football, the playoff system has worked, we definitely have a a landscape where the dominant teams get to settle it at the end of the year, but I think it's very clear who the dominant teams are. Now, this becomes this becomes important if we think about what being a dominant team likely likely leads to. Yeah, so along those lines, right? So it, it seems to me, and again, I, I, I don't have numbers to back this one up, but it does appear that competitive balance imbalance has increased. Can I argue that the playoff system increases imbalances? It's hard to make a direct link that's going to, let's say, convince the more analytical folks out there. At this point, I'm going to make a logical case for why it might be. I, I actually, you know, if you're asking me as sort of a disinterested or an impartial observer, if the college football system, playoff system is going to increase imbalances, I'm going to give you a quick answer of, well, of course it is. I mean, you think about how this system works. As a college football season ends, we see all sorts of teams slotted into all sorts of bowl games or teams actually stri- striving to get to six wins so they can play in a, in a bowl game. And, you know, some teams go to the, 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 these Illini-type bowls of the Craft Fight Hunger Bowl and the Red Box Bowl. And other teams get selected for the playoff. Now, you're, you're a college football recruit. College football recruiting, you know, multiple signing days at this point. Historically, the big signing day has always been in January after the bowl games were over. You're watching this. Where is the, you know, what are the more glamorous programs? The Ohio State's and the Alabamas that are featured in the selection show. They get to play in really high-profile and highly-rated games throughout the throughout the playoff system, and get to in fact be crowned, you know, potentially national champions. Versus folks that play in what is, you know, the the bowl games were always exhibition games, but now they really look like exhibition games. Right, you're playing in a bowl game that doesn't lead anywhere if you win it. It's almost the definition of a an exhibition game, like a preseason game, something kind of meaningless. So, so how does this play through in terms of you know future imbalance or balance? Think about the recruiting pitches that are probably now given at places like Alabama and Clemson. Come here and play for championships. We go to the championship play or the playoff system almost every year. 
versus at a lower level school, even in a power five conference. It's like, well, we can sell that. We, we've had a few postseason opportunities. And, and so the, the, this fundamental difference of some teams consistently play for championships and some teams do not. So I can almost hear the, I can almost hear the criticism from the, the fans of the powerhouse teams that this is not their problem, that this is on the lesser teams, the less successful teams to figure out ways to become competitive. And I think that is kind of this fundamental point here, this fundamental disconnect of, is it in fact a viable situation? Can these sort of these teams that don't get selected for the playoff or are not eligible for this, for, for sort of playing in the big time, the big, the big leagues of college football, as it were, is it on them or is the mountain getting higher and higher? The challenge is getting more and more difficult to actually break through. I mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, recruiting pitches. And I even think about just the differences in market exposure, right? I mean, this is uh, the advantages in terms of being on primetime TV, um, the weeks of hype, the, the, the stories that are built around these teams. I mean, it, it really is a, a case of haves and have-nots. Okay, so question three then. Given the current situation... Number one, the playoff system with four teams. And number two, the shift towards allowing players to be paid. What do we predict about competitive balance? Okay, simple prediction. I've sort of already gone ahead and mentioned some points about this. Increased power at the top. Okay, I don't see any way to avoid that. We now have a system that glamorizes the teams at the top end of college football, right? Prime time, more prime time viewing, um, enables them to have recruiting pitches of play for championships. We're tilting the playing field towards the dominant programs, okay? Is this a problem? Again, this is something we can debate. You know, is it important that we have complete parity? I would say no, you know, it's it's okay to have sort of kind of big bullies, the David and Goliath type competitions. But um, is it healthy to keep moving in more in that direction? And so, you know, the, the current college playoff system has four teams in it. This does not even allow in a lot of years for um, representation. I mean, in fact, it's impossible, right, to have representation from all of the major Power Five conferences. I think over time, the Pac-10 has actually, um, I, I think there's definitely some issues from Pac-10 land when questioning how fair this system has actually been. I mean, there have been years where there have been two SEC teams like Georgia and Alabama, and maybe someone from a league like the Pac-10 has been shut out. Um, but Keeping the argument in terms of the current system, four teams not shifting to eight teams or 16 teams or 12 teams, how does this shift towards allowing the players to be paid or to profit from their images? How does this interact with the current system? And I think it is, again, pointing us towards some level of increased imbalance. So if we've got some glamour programs, well, where are the kids going to want to go to? Go to if a kid is is really interested in getting paid, are they going to want to go to one of the glamour programs or not? Simple, I mean, too simple of a question to ask, right? So if you want to profit from your imagery, if you want to do endorsement deals, 
then where do you want to go? You want to go to where the lights are going to be the brightest, where there's the most prime time exposure, which means you are going to, you know, the, the combination of these two systems of a relatively small college football playoff and now allowing players to profit from their images, it seems like it's destined to push kids in, I mean, like we don't have parity now. It seems like it's destined to create even more of an imbalance. Now, for the sake of this conversation, I have been mainly talking about uh, college football since this is this is the season that's ongoing. A couple of really quick comments. I think college basketball actually does have a system in place that a playoff system in place that does moderate a little of these competitive imbalance fears. I mean, you know, in college basketball, we've got people even talk about like blue blood programs, Duke, Kentucky, uh, North Carolina. But in college basketball, you know, you've got a 64 or 65 team playoff structure that enables everyone to get a little bit of time. And so in college football, right, you've had a system where places like Gonzaga or Xavier have been able to, or Butler a few years ago, have been able to actually build up a little bit of brand equity. Now, is that sustainable? Maybe, maybe not. Starts to seem so for some of the teams like Gonzaga, but it's, you know, it's, it's a tough road, but at least there is a road to do it. While in college football, you know, the Boise States, the UCFs have actually been excluded from those, those playoff opportunities. The other thing that I think is different about college basketball is that the degree of stardom, while the college basketball stage is smaller than the college football stage, the impact of a star is much greater in college football, college basketball. You know, the, the idea of a one and done player, someone that comes in from high school and is NBA ready. This is a fundamentally different marketing type of uh, situation. I mean, we, we think about last year at Duke with, uh, with Zion. Zion clearly could have collected major shoe dollars even as a freshman. So the, you know, the, there are some differences because in general, the nature of football, it's, it's kind of tough to imagine a multi-million dollar shoe deal via Nike or Adidas for a college football player, but very possible in terms of uh, college basketball. So college basketball, and I'll get back to college football is probably a little bit of a different place in that there's a playoff structure that is more amenable to, you know, allowing a path for schools to create brand equity and sort of maintain their fan bases. Um, but it also has probably even more marketing forces that might want to jump in and sort of distort the natural level of competitive balance. At least in my opinion, where we're at at this point is, and again, mostly college football, but also college basketball, we find ourselves in a little bit of a tricky situation in terms of the forces in play. And, and you know, I, I should take one quick step back. When I'm looking at, comp at paying the players in this whole issue, my take is probably coming at this from a different point of view than most folks. I think most folks are looking at this in terms of issues related to equity, related to fairness. My take is really coming from the place of, let's say, the health of the game. And so given the structures in place, what do I think is going to happen to the level of competitive balance, to the level of fandom across all sorts of institutions? A fundamentally different place. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but I'm thinking about the health of the game. We may even say in some ways we could say that 
I'm more interested in the issue of growing the pie or sustaining the college sports revenue pie, while a lot of what other folks are talking about is an equitable distribution of the pie. So slicing the pie versus growing the pie. So that brings me to my question number four. So how do we move forward? And my starting point for that is going to be some form of collective bargaining agreement. Okay. That brings me to my question uh, Q4 of what are collective bargaining agreements? Okay. So in professional sports, when we talk about competitive balance, very quickly we get to collective bargaining agreements. Collective bargaining agreements or CBAs are the the, 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 negotiation, the negotiations between unions of players and teams that define the rules of the game. It defines how owners and players are going to interact, the kind of contracts that are going to be signed, things like free agency, amateur drafts. So it is the structures in place that divide up the pie and define the competitive landscape, okay? The rules of the league. Now, this is something I will talk a lot about on, on the blog and on the podcast because I think the rules of the league are something that fans should be more concerned with because the rules of the league are largely what determine how leagues end up fun functioning. Competitive balancing agreements might sound boring, like this is just how the lawyers on one side negotiate with the lawyers on the other to decide you know, how the revenue pie is split, but in fact, the way these things are implemented largely determines, let's say, the potential value, the potential ability of a small market team to compete with a large market team. Okay. So, um, in terms of what these things look like, and, and again, these things tend to exist in professional leagues. Um, what are in CBAs that dictate or regulate competition? I think the big ones that folks will should think about are amateur drafts. So the idea that teams that perform poorly, you know, get the first pick of the incoming pool of players. Number two, salary caps. So limitations on what teams can spend. The New York team can't completely dominate the spending of the Kansas City team, for example. Free agency. So players' ability to move from one league or the other. Okay. Now. We're talking college sports. You know, we're not talking pro sports. College sports has a fundamentally different structure. And I think it's also worthwhile saying that college sports has traditionally had a fundamentally different mission. Now this is a this is a bit of a tough issue because if the you know, if you want to make the argument that college sports, the mission of that is to enrich the educational experience to allow students to also be able to compete in athletics as part of their undergraduate program. I think that is a, it's an argument worth making that that's what college sports should be. But I can also imagine a lot of pushback saying, hey, you know, that, that's just a silly argument. That's not what college sports are. College sports are a $100 million business for some institutions. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Stop, you know, take off the rose-colored glasses and be honest about what this really is, okay? Um, but it is, you know, so even arguing about the college mission, um, the mission of athletics and sort of the purpose that the, these teams play for these institutions or uh, the purpose of these teams in terms of student experience, 
we've got to note a couple of sort of obvious points about the difference in structures. So college athlete, college athletics, you know, in professional sports, we've got owners and players. If we translate that to the college landscape, well, I guess the institutions are the owners. The universities are the ones that own these teams. Now, even that sounds funny saying, right? I mean, the, the, these institutions clearly operate these teams. They, they make hiring and firing decisions. But do they operate these teams as, let's say, profit-making businesses? Maybe. Maybe some of the time. Um, it's a, And the reason why I sort of stay on this point for a second is I think it's a fundamentally different way of looking at the world as... You know, because even if a, a college has is running a big money program, do they view it as running a business? As someone that's been a university professor for the number of years, colleges, universities, they're just different. And so this, even this idea of treating them as the owner on the side of this probably is going to be a little bit of a challenge in terms of any negotiations. Okay? Uh, number two. The student athlete at the, as the players, and this is where I think it starts to get very tricky very quickly. Are the student athletes going to join a union? And then is this union going to negotiate an agreement with the institutions? This doesn't sound like being a college student anymore, does it? Now, there, there's already been some discussion about unionization. I think the Northwestern football team uh, pushed this a, a, a number of years ago. It's a really kind of an interesting question as to what will that in fact mean if college students become unionized employees? Are they still students? Are they employees? Are they some kind of um, are they some kind of hybrid? So even the notion of negotiating a competitive balance agreement or, or sorry a collective bargaining agreement takes will, will require sort of a fundamental rethink about the roles of the institutions, the universities. And the types of students that are going to be engaged in college sports. I mean, even like this notion of having a college athlete union, I think this very quickly brings up some interesting questions of, so if I want to be a student at a, at a university and play football, I have to join a union? I have to become a professional player? That's a... That's a big leap. So I think this is, even at its onset, is going to be a really kind of tricky situation. Moving on from that. So let's, even just thinking about the different aspects of, um, the different aspects of this, of college football versus uh, professional sports. And just going into like this idea of what a collective bargaining agreement would look like are sort of the standard elements of these of these uh, agreements of these things that are designed to keep some equivalence between teams in, in place are these even possible in the college sports uh, in the college sports arena and so for example I think probably the the biggest tool used to maintain competitive balance is the amateur draft Okay, and so, for example, in the NFL, the team with the worst record gets to have the first pick of the players coming out of college. Same thing in the NBA. Is this something that can be done at the college level? Okay, so you just imagine this, you know, and some of this is like 
going to say some of this clearly sounds crazy, right? So you imagine a situation where now the colleges are drafting from high school prospects. This stuff just sounds strange, doesn't it? So the idea like some kid that's number one, rank, let's say the number one ranked college prospect, high school senior is, let's say it's a running back out of Louisiana, and, but the first pick in the, in the NCAA draft of high school players is, let's say it's the University of Connecticut, a historically struggling football program. I don't even know how we can start with this, right? So this idea that um, a kid from a different part of the country is now going to be selected to attend college and play sports for for an institution halfway across the country, does that does the drafting institution even have the major that the kid wants? Does it have the educational programming? So this this part sounds something like a, a non-starter. Is it possible to, and you know, fundamentally, what is this about? It's about sort of managing the inflow of talent across programs. And so is there a structure in place for managing that talent? Some form of draft seems very doubtful. You know, maybe something to be more uh, feasible is limiting the number of scholarships. So somehow limiting the number of high profile or high potential athletes are, can be brought in at each of the different institutions. Um, that actually has some additional problems, right? Because then you're restraining opportunities. And so let's say we went from having about 20, 22 scholarships per school per year. What if you drop that down to five or 10? Well, again, you're kind of reducing the opportunities of the student athletes, which would seem to be in the opposite direction of where this world wants to go and perhaps needs to go. Uh, the second one, a salary cap, right? See this all the time across professional sports in places like the NBA and the NFL. Okay, now this one I think is actually really tricky in the college football arena. And so we're not even talking about this idea of letting the institutions pay the players, right? Of having some competition based on stipends or actually salaries. Uh, we're talking about marketing dollars. So the players having an ability to run their own business. Okay, so some type of salary cap. Would that mean some type of limitation in terms of what players could make on the outside of the game? So that a college basketball player would be limited in the, the scope of a, or the scale of a shoe deal they could sign? A college football player would be limited in terms of making money as a, as a YouTube, running a YouTube channel? This seems really difficult to implement, right? Because... I suppose the way you would think about this would be structured is somehow the players all sign up to be part of this union. And when they make marketing dollars, somehow the dollars flow through the union and the players only allowed to uh, keep some measure of that, some, some amount of the dollars up to whatever the salary cap tends to be conceivable, but I think really a difficult thing to sell. And then this even comes back to this notion of, you know, are players required to sign a, sign, sign a contract to be part of a union to play sports? Is someone like Zion last year required to be part of the union? I mean, because, you know, really the, the, the athletes that are going to have the marketing power, the ones that could actually drive individual revenues that have brand equity coming out of high school are probably going to be the least likely to want to be participate in such a system. Number three, how about revenue sharing? Now, some folks will rightly point out that revenue sharing exists 
across the major leagues, right? The Big Ten has revenue sharing based on the dollars from the Big Ten network. The, you know, and I think all the Power Five conferences have those type of play, things in place. What about across those leagues, though? And what about sharing to the non-Power Five schools? This, again, strikes me as really a difficult proposition. So the NFL has been known for revenue sharing parity while also producing dynasties like the, like the current Patriots. How would this potentially work in college football? Even with some revenue sharing, you know, history matters in this. And there are schools with 100,000 100, seat stadiums like Michigan or Tennessee, and there are schools with 90-plus thousand seat stadiums that also have histories of winning and sort of have bigger fundamental revenue bases. So there's a lot of, let's say, New York Yankee-type programs out there that just have a system already in place to generate revenues. Now, some form of revenue sharing would attempt to spread the wealth, so that the money that a Penn State or a Michigan or a Ohio State is creating is actually going to flow more towards schools with, with much lesser traditions, facilities, et cetera, et cetera. We've got two questions here. You know, is that going to be able to be sort of doable across the Power Five members, sort of big-time players? Where I think it gets really tough is, is that going to be possible to actually get at the lower half of Division One football? Is there anything in place, any type of incentives that means that an Alabama is going to want to throw some funds to, uh, you know, the, the members of the, the Mountain West or the, or the MAC conference? I think that's much more of a challenge, and it's going to be something that even if something was negotiated, some form of revenue sharing, I suspect it would be very much in the form of keeping the lesser competitors alive rather than really trying to create some form of competitive balance, meaning that enough revenue would be shared that the Eastern Michigans and the Louisiana Techs would still be viable as competitors, but really just competitors for those first couple of games where you know, there's a 60 to 7 type score, really kind of a, a beat down to, to get a couple of almost exhibition games in place before the real season starts. Okay, so revenue sharing might be possible, but again, it's going to be kind of tricky given the differences in uh, the, the differences across the schools and the leagues and the current landscape. Okay, so four questions, which leads me to a, a bit of a proposal on this. So if we buy my argument that competitive balance is important, what can be done to create a system where you're going to have some level of balance, some level of parity? Okay, we'll also accept the idea that players are that players are going to have some ability based on their marketing appeal to earn uh, to earn money via some sort of side deals. So not going to be in a position where the schools are paying the players directly. But we are going to be in a new world where players have some incentive to go to higher profile schools, higher brand equity schools, because it might facilitate their ability to earn some additional revenues. Okay. If this is our world, then the question becomes, well, what can we do? So what I'm going to propose is some form of a salary cap, some form of a spending cap. Now, in the, in the professional sports realm, this has almost always been implemented in terms of what can the players be paid. 
right? So what's the max salary that a Michael Jordan or a LeBron James can earn? What is the total salary that can be offered to to the rosters of the Chicago Bears, right? So it's always been on the player side. What I'm going to propose for college football is something a little bit different. And it is very much this proposal is coming from what we've talked about here, this idea that this system is fundamentally different. You've got student athletes who should have all sorts of rights in terms of where they're going to get an education, right? So they're not just athletes, they're student athletes, which means they should be able to choose the school they're going to, the ma- you know, based on the major, based on the location, et cetera. So what can we, in fact, put a cap on? What we've been talking about so far today is a number of questions that really dig into the, the current landscape of college football, the relationship between um, the, this new world of players being allowed to profit from their, their marketing rights, uh, some of the impact of the college football playing system that creates, a, you know, puts more of a spotlight on the elite teams in, in college football. And so what I want to end the, end the episode with today is a proposal to say put a little bit of a competitive balance structure into the league. Okay, and again, this is contingent on if you're buying the argument that competitive balance is important in college football. And we are going to accept the idea that players can have some side deals. What we're not going to talk about is this idea of, you know, not even on the table, this idea that schools are going to compete with, uh, compete with each other by offering salaries or stipends to players. And so what, what my thinking is at this point, given this landscape, is that the right approach is some type of a salary cap. Okay, now, I feel like I just contradicted myself in terms of what I said. But in the college sports environment, rather than a salary cap focused on players, maybe the right approach is a salary cap focused on coaches and administrators, athletic directors. So the idea here is that in sports and collective bargaining agreements, one way to maintain parity or at least some level of equality is by limiting the dollars available at an institution. Now, maybe we can't do that with the players, especially in this current environment where we're just taking a baby step towards compensation. And look, we, we've got, I do think there's fundamental challenges in terms of moving towards a full model of compensation, right? College students are, maybe the key phrase here is this idea of student athletes. So even if you want to regulate the athlete behavior, the student behavior is going to be something where, you know, we really need to err on the side of freedom in terms of choosing the institution where the, where the person wants to attend based on major, based on location, et cetera. Where we do have professionals in the college game is on the administrative and on the coaching side. And so some type of salary cap, you know, maybe it's $10 million for your coaching staff in football. Maybe it's $5 million for basketball. Some caps on the athletic director uh, salary. You know, maybe they, they are capped at the level of the, you know, the highest paid professor on campus. Instituting a cap on these individuals might be the right approach for limiting these competitive forces that might be leading to unfortunate or sort of long-term difficult uh, imbalances, right? And so the idea here is if a, if a college coach, if sort of the, the top coach is 
don't have incremental earning power at different institutions, then they're more likely to stay and build a uh, build a program at what might be historically a lesser institution, right? So if the if we come back to just sort of the basic marketing power of these institutions, and let's say the let's say the elite schools in the college football realm are the Alabamas, the Ohio States, the Notre Dames, the Texas, the USC's, et cetera. These schools are actually in a position where the marginal benefit to having a top coach is frankly greater than if we're talking about an institution like, let's say, Iowa State or Illinois or Connecticut. And so one way to, let's say, reduce this type of problem, and again, only a problem if you're worried about competitive balance levels, is to limit the ability for those schools that could potentially, you know, extract more marginal benefits from higher quality coaches, um, limit their ability to pay those those top coaches. Okay. Now, I can I can almost hear people say, "Well, this is fundamentally unfair. This is anti free market." But that's what happens in all of these collective bargaining agreements, right? Whenever there's a salary cap or a max salary. The interesting thing is here that these maximums have always been imposed on the players. Now, in the college football or college basketball landscape where the players aren't getting paid, then maybe what we need to look to is some formula, some method for eliminating the salaries or eliminating the incentives of the folks that are getting paid. And so it's a little bit of a funny uh, proposal. I, at least it kind of sounds funny to me as I, as I talk about it. But I think this might be the most viable next move in terms of this uh, evolving situation. So you know, we've got a college football playoff that might be exacerbating competitive imbalances. We've got a move towards allowing for folks to earn money on the outside, which again might be creating a bit more imbalance. And so what kind of structure could be implemented to move us back towards some level of parity or equivalence in terms of different institutions' ability to compete. And I think the obvious place to look is something related to a salary cap on coaches and administrators. Okay, So again, maybe potentially a controversial proposal, but looking at the whole system, um, looking at how this is structured right now, I think it's an obvious point to, I think it's a, potentially interesting avenue to start to pursue. Okay, so that that's where I'm at on, on this topic. Um, it, it's been an interesting fall in terms of college sports, thinking about how this is going to evolve, thinking about how the, this world, not just how it's going to evolve based on the forces in place, but based on you know what potentially could be done next to preserve the college the college game. I'm a big college sports fan, both football and basketball. I would definitely like to be at move forward in a, in a healthy sense. Okay, so as always, I want to thank everyone for listening to tuning into the podcast. I'm going to do a bit of a write up related to everything we've been talking about this last fall paying the players, competitive balance. So take a look for that. That'll be on the, uh, on the, on the webpage, on the weblog at fanalyticswithmikelewis.com. And so, you know, until the next time we need to make something in sports more complicated than it needs to be, um, talk to you guys soon.